Welcome to Ring of Fire. I'm Mike Papantonio. Today on Ring of Fire, author and professor David Bromwich is going to explain what happened to make Obama so timid. And Richard Eskow is going to join us to explain the growing rift between the corporatist wing of the Democratic Party and the populists. And we'll look at how the media continues to get it wrong when covering race issues. You can follow Ring of Fire on Facebook or on Twitter at Ring of Fire Radio. Keep up with the latest progressive news on our website at ringoffireradio.com. And you can tune in to Ring of Fire weeknights at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on Free Speech TV. The Amtrak crash that claimed half a dozen lives last week is still in the headlines, but as usual, the real story hasn't been told by corporate media. Amtrak has spent millions lobbying to make the rail travel less safe and to take away your right to hold them accountable when they kill people. Joining me now to tell us what's happening is David Haynes. You know, it's amazing, David, uh, the Amtrak industry, as a matter of fact, the entire rail industry, it, it, it's almost inconceivable that, A, they don't want to keep their, their, their anything up to speed. I mean, the infrastructure is dying. The Republicans are making sure that's dying. But then the second thing is they want immunity when they kill people. I, this is what's developed here. I mean, tell us the story about the, the two things. First of all, we know they're not safe to ride. And then second of all, if they're not safe to ride, should they be given immunity where you can't sue them when your family's wiped out on a rail, on a rail car? Isn't it incredible that we have another tragedy on our nation's railways uh, late Tuesday night of last week? And then Wednesday, the Republicans are literally on the floor of the House rejecting a Democratic amendment to spend more money to improve safety control, specifically the positive train traction uh, safety mechanism, which would have prevented this incident. And so the infrastructure is dying, as you say. High-speed rail is in Europe, Asia. We're not only, uh, not only are we not upgrading to that, we can't even maintain what we have. If positive train control would have been on this section of track in Philadelphia, this would have never have occurred. This train wouldn't have, wouldn't have been able to go over 50 miles an hour. Yet the Republicans have reduced spending by one-fifth uh, of Amtrak spending in the bill passed last Wednesday. And so it's, it's just a terrible situation. Well, they want to privatize it, and that's, that's, that's what the GOP does. Every time they want to privatize the post office, they dry up the money of the post office. They want to dry up education and privatize education. They dry up the money to education. They want to privatize Amtrak. They drive up the money, hopefully, hopefully making the argument that, gee whiz, somebody can do a better job. They now want to—you've seen it with even the public parks— they dry up money to take care of the public parks so they can allow the public parks to be bought by their, you know, their, their money donors out of Wall Street. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty well-known M.O. But in this case, I think that it's, it's, it's deplorable that not only are the Republicans helping the, this, the, the rail industry allow their infrastructure just to fall apart so they can take more on the bottom line and they can make a bigger profit by not taking care of anything. They then are saying, you know what, if everything goes bad and we kill 100 people, then the most that's ever go that that railway's ever going to have to pay is $200 million. Did I get that right? You did. It's, it's, it's rather incredible, but the families are facing that uh, cap. We were involved in uh, a tragedy down here in D.C. several years ago, Fort Totten. In Chatsworth, uh, California, there were 25 killed, numerous seriously injured. There is a maximum total cap 
no matter how many deaths or how many catastrophic injuries of 200 million for all passengers, no matter the situation, anywhere in our country if it happens on our nation's railways. This was a cap that was put into place a number of years ago when President Clinton was in office. It was sponsored by Senator Kay Bailey Hutchinson. Your viewers will remember her from Texas. Uh, it's no coincidence that she accepted over $350,000 from the rail lobby. So this cap has no accommodation for a cost of living increase or anything else. The cap is still in place and it must be removed as well as improvements uh, must be okay, made. Okay, so let, let's, let, let's just make it clear. If 150 or 200 people are killed or maimed in an Amtrak kind of collision, a disaster, a catastrophe, call it what you want, then there, it, the money that all of those people can get for their medicals, for their future wages, for, for anything, for everybody included, all in one big pile is $200 million. Is that that's, right? That's correct. And for some of these serious injury cases, their future medical costs alone, just for one person, uh, will be in the, in the eight figures for some of these folks, not to mention the, the death cases and, and the, uh, many of these in, uh, individuals were wage earners providing for their young families and so forth. So this is a very egregious law that's on the books that must be removed. Of course, we never want these tragedies to happen in the first place. But as you point out, to allow them to happen for failure to invest in infrastructure and then turn around, it's, it's salt in the wound to these families to say that there's a limitation because you happen to be riding on our nation's rails. Okay, so where we are now is you have, uh, ultimately, if you have 100 people seriously injured and there's not enough money to go around, you have taxpayers who now have to take care of medical bills. They have to, if the, if the people are disabled, they have to take care of that disability. So, so what the rail industry does is shifts all that responsibility away from the people making the money, which is the rail industry, and it, that responsibility then shifts to the people that are simply taxpayers that have to make up that difference. Isn't, kind of, isn't that where we're left? Essentially, uh, you're right. I think, I think you're making the point there'll be an added burden on the health care system for people who won't be properly compensated for the negligence which occurs on the rail. The rail lobby in Congress is tremendously strong. Uh, they, they have put in $1.9 million, I believe, in, in the last cycle to many members on the uh, transportation committee. And so th this is a cap that needs to be removed. We need to have better safety conditions. So hopefully we can have too many times we're having these tragedies in our country. This is a rail line I, I was riding on uh, with my wife the other weekend, you know, up and down the Northeast corridor. It's heavily traveled. We need to know that we're going to be safe on these roadways. It's just unacceptable for Republicans to try to privatize. It seems to be the answer, answer to everything. Um, but, but, you know, we need this. This is a, a quasi-governmental uh, situation with Amtrak and Congress needs to make the appropriate investment. And when people are injured through the uh, negligence of Amtrak, uh, then they need to be fully, fully compensated. OK, so in this situation, um, it, let, let, let's talk about Metrolink. We got a couple of minutes. Metrolink was a case where you had uh, just horrible, catastrophic injuries because the the uh, the uh, engineer rail driver was texting while they were, while while he was driving the uh, the train and it it ended up in hundreds of people being injured. Okay, so the judge is then in a situation. You got hundreds of people injured. You got people that are paralyzed, will never walk again. People are blinded. Uh, people with such catastrophic injuries that they have permanent brain damage. So this judge is then having to say, okay, I got $200 million that I have to split up among these people. It's almost kind of like a Sophie's Choice kind of decision, isn't it? The judge says, well, I, I don't know. Who, who makes, 
Who makes the decision? Does the guy with the brain damage get the money or does the child who will never walk again get the money? It's a horrible situation uh, for that federal judge to be in in the Chatsworth, California case and some of these other cases where he has to make a, a terrible situation knowing that a lot of these individuals are not going to be properly compensated. Those who have lost uh, their loved one and are without a wage earner and a, a member of their immediate family are not going to be properly compensated. And members of the general public are just not aware. This could have been any of us, any of our families. Uh, as uh, Vice President Biden mentioned, this could have been anybody on the train. And uh, your viewers need to be aware that appropriate civil justice is not available in these situations, that you are basically going to have to be put into a matrix with, a, with a hun hundreds of other people, and the judge is going to have to uh, figure out how many pennies on the dollar you're entitled to because of this cap that the Republicans keep insisting on, on keeping in place. And the rail industry that's paying off people, senators and congressmen, you know, 300,000 here, 200,000 there, they get to keep all their profits and pass all the risk on to the taxpayer. Wow, isn't America great? Thank you for joining me, David, okay? Thank you. Coming up, blogger and author Chauncey DeVega is going to be here to tell us why the corporate media continues to fail when it comes to covering race issues in America. I'm Mike Pavantonio. You're listening to Ring of Fire. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Ring of Fire. I'm Mike Papantonio. There's no denying that racial tensions in America are escalating. Nearly every week we're treated to another and another story of how an overzealous action movie wannabe cop murders an unarmed black person. But the divide goes much deeper than that. And I have blogger and author Chauncey DeVega with me to explain what's happening today. Chauncey, it's amazing the variation that we get in the way that various races perceive what Baltimore was all about. I think about uh, your article. You did a great job summing this up where you talk about the Kerner Report. You talk about the Sears and Tomlinson Report and basically show that nothing's changed about the way that Caucasians view what happened in Baltimore or what happened in L.A. If you listen to what they say, they think it was all about people wanting to steal TV sets black people that wanting to break into stores and simply loot. You would think that it's changed between 1968 and today, but it hasn't, has it? No, it hasn't. We see a remarkable amount of stability in terms of white public opinion and racial attitudes, in terms of how they view African-American protest behavior. So, for example, in the Watts riots in L.A., there was research by the Kerner Commission and also a great article by Sears and Tomlinson that everybody should try to check out, which basically talked to white folks and African-Americans about their perceptions of those urban uprisings. White folks more or less believe that these are just uncoordinated, uncoordinated mass behavior, looting and rioting, very similar to what you're hearing in the mainstream corporate media about Baltimore. You talk to African-Americans, they're like, no, this is protest behavior. This is about righteous rage and anger at an unfair system. This is about police brutality. This is about price gouging by these merchants in many of these communities. So, Okay, well, let me, let me, slow, let me break that down. In other words, you're saying it's not just this dissatisfaction with the fact that we have a militarized police that will stop you for being black or shoot you for being black in many occasions, as we've seen across this nation. It is that they feel like there's something um, 
unfair about the way they're tr- being treated, even with the merchants doing business with them, even the, the money lenders, so to speak, or the, pe- the payday cash people or the, the paycheck cash people. Or that, that, that It's a culmination of all that that is part of the reaction. It's not just we just want to loot stores. As you've pointed out in your article, you, you call it an uprising, and the uprising is, a more, is more about than just, hey, gee, I think I can go get a nice color TV set at this store. Absolutely. These are not random events. So you look at Freddie Gray's horrific murder, for example. The police are still investigating. The DA's finally charged them. That was just the proximate event. Freddie Gray is really the symptom of many decades of upset and grievance at the police in Baltimore. The police in Baltimore and the city have paid out millions of dollars in fines and legal settlements in police brutality and police murder cases. So African-Americans are not crazy and deranged with feral youth running around, which is basically what Fox News and many other outlets basically describe the young lions, as I like to call them, in Baltimore who were taken to the streets. No, these are folks who are reasonably upset, as African-Americans were in the 1960s. And when you see that resonance, when you can look at an article published in the 60s, and read an article written several months ago, and basically the findings are the same about how white America misunderstands and misperceives righteous black upset at systemic inequality, we know we have a deep problem. Well, look, Chauncey, you follow these issues and is more intelligently than just a hundred writers. I just really love the way that you take a look at this. What what is it your what what is your take? Did Baltimore do more harm to racial relations than it did good? That's a really, really good question. Again, going back to what we know from the Kerner Commission in the 1960s, 50 years ago, we saw similar declines in the hope that we'll have racial progress. In a lot of ways, I describe this as continuity and change. We have a lot of symbolic change in this country. We have a president who happens to be black. We have an attorney general who happens to be black now twice. Um, But the fact of the matter, in terms of structural inequality, in terms of social distance, we have not seen the types of changes we would have liked to have imagined in the aftermath of the civil rights movement. And that's a choice in a lot of ways. The problems we see in Baltimore, the problems we see in Ferguson, the problems we see all over this country with systemic inequality, poverty and police abuse, well, that's going to persist because there are white policy leaders and other elites who are deeply invested in them. America doesn't want to change because it's invested in not changing. Well, part of the elite attitude is that we got that their their attitude, Chauncey, and I know you've written about it. I, again, you nail this issue every time I read something you write, and it's it is that there is this Mad Max mentality that they will be on the other side of the wall and we'll be over here safely on our side of the wall, and that so so this new militarization of police is to prepare for that. This new conservative movement with politicians is to prepare for that. It's to prepare for the, the shift in demographic change that these horrified, terrified, old white people see happening all around them. You can't discount that, can you? That It is real fear that these they're getting older. Baby boomers are getting older. They see demographics changing. They live right down the streets from a place like Baltimore where uh, – well, maybe not down the street, but down the highway from a place – Uh, like Baltimore, where this uprising took place. This is a big factor to overcome, isn't it, Chauncey? Absolutely. It's a a right white-wing fantasy about black uprisings and violence that go all the way back to slavery. There's another great movie that really echoes here, and it's a movie called The Purge. So it's not a coincidence that Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, and the right-wing media were talking about Baltimore like it's a movie, The Purge, where people go out one day and kill everybody. Well, the fact of the matter is, black folk, brown folk, poor people, the mentally ill, the handicapped, they're the ones being killed by the cops in this country, and we have tons of data about it. So it really is a projection of a deranged type of fantasy that black and brown folks and black youth are going to be the ones hurting white America, when in reality, between the prison industrial complex, between rampant violence by police, between environmental racism, we can go down the list. And this really creates what is called racial battle fatigue. 
There's a reason that black and brown folk are tired and that we're angry in the aftermath of Freddie Gray, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice. And the reality is we're going to see more protests, not less. And hopefully that will create some change. Well, the, the, in the, it, hopefully it will, Chauncey. But as, we, as you've written about and as we've seen other people write about, the, the idea is, is the fear card uh, with the average uh, elderly white that seems to have power in the United States right now. They're the people that are you know, giving the police orders indirectly, indirectly. Uh, it, has it become so bad that, um, it, it, that they've pulled out their guns and said, we're going to have to defend ourselves? Is that the mentality that you, that you see out there as you watch all this? No, that's what I'm troubled by, especially with the rise in these concealed carry laws, these stand your ground laws, and we have an increasing concentration of resources among a very, very small group of people. And I just hope that the mass of white America... Our, our white brothers and sisters, everybody on both sides of the color line realize that these militarized thug cops who are out in Ferguson who were choking people to death like Eric Gardner, well, they're coming for the white poor and the white middle class and the white working class next. So this is really in everybody's collective self-interest to make sure that the Bill of Rights is enforced, that the Equal Protection Clause is enforced, and that the police treat people with dignity and respect regardless of their color, their race, their ethnic background, their gender, or their sexuality. Chauncey, we're out of time. Thank you for joining us, okay? Thank you. Chauncey DeVega is a regular contributor to Salon.com and Alternet. Coming up, Farron Cousins from the Trial Lawyer Magazine is going to be here to talk about the biggest news of the week that the corporate media refused to talk about. That's just ahead, so stay with us right here on Ring of Fire. Back on Ring of Fire, I'm Mike Papantonio. Now let's jump back into the Ring of Fire and talk about the news of the week, the biggest stories from progressive media that you might have missed. Joining me now for this week's discussion is Trial Lawyer Magazine editor Farron Cousins. Farron, incredible story. I mean, here we have been talking about Eric Holder's incompetence and unwillingness to go after Wall Street since the day he took office. He wasted year after year telling us that he was actually going to do something about the Wall Street criminals that, by the way, he represented and still represents. He's gone back to the same law firm that represents these corporate criminals after he left the AG's office. No surprise there. But the payoff was he didn't prosecute them. So he makes this statement 90 days ago. Remember impounding, we're going to do something about these criminals. We're going to, in 90 days, we're going to determine whether we can actually prosecute these criminals. And day 91, nothing has happened. It was all a farce. And it was really all a way simply to get Loretta Lynch past the approval process here. He was trying to scare everybody by saying, you know, if you don't do this, Republicans, I'm going to go after your big money people on Wall Street. Right. It's also a way to uh, appease the Democrats who wanted something done, you know, who, who were afraid that Loretta Lynch, uh, who worked plenty of time as a representative at a New York bank, they wanted to say, okay, look, 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 we're, we're doing something about the banks. Now, Democrats, can you fully support her? Because there was quite a bit of a big Democratic backlash from Loretta Lynch. You know, they sell her on the idea that, yeah, oh, she's great on these, you know, social issues and racial justice, which is needed, but that's only half of it. And Eric Holder, uh, mid-February, comes out and says, look, all right, 90 days, state attorney generals, start gathering up evidence. Let's see what we got. Let's see if we can bring some prosecutions 
And then that was it. That, that, that big story made headlines all over. And then there is nothing since then. We, not, we don't hear what, a word you tell, about prosecution. Try to find a story in corporate media on day 91 where Eric Holder accomplished anything in taking his friends out of Wall Street in handcuffs, perp walking him. Eric Holder knows, he admitted that he knows that they stole trillions of dollars. They committed fraud. Bank of America they finds them $10 billion for federal housing finance kind of fraud. Citigroup, uh, $75 million, nobody goes to jail. Bank of America, again, $137 million for, for sabotaging the American government processing of contracts. The numbers are there. The criminals are there. But Obama could have said, you know what, Eric Holder, if you want to keep this job, you need to do your job and you need to prosecute the people that you represented when you were a lawyer there at Covington Burling. And you need to you need to be blind to that. Now he's back at Covington Burling doing exactly the same thing representing these white crawler criminals the same way. Uh, it's a story that I just find remarkable. Absolutely. Let's move on to the story about Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush tells, makes the statement that he would have done exactly what his brother did in Iraq. He would have invaded, and then he tries to say that, gee whiz, it wasn't that my brother was a complete idiot, which he is. It is that my brother was lied to by intel. Well, tell me, what is your take on that? What a ridiculous statement. This guy's running for president. Yeah, I would invade him anyway. I knew it was a mistake. I would do it again. That's what's so remarkable is that he says, okay, look, we, we know now the intelligence was false. But if I knew back then and I was president, if I knew that it was false, you know what? I would still do it. That statement alone right there should disqualify him from ever holding another public office. When you have people like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio who hear Jeb Bush say that and immediately say, whoa, whoa, look, if I knew it was false, I wouldn't have done it. We okay, well, put, let's put it in perspective, though. Here you got Jeb Bush, PNAC, the Project for a New American Century, which planned the Iraq War. He, Jeb Bush had his name on the document of PNAC saying, yes, we need to invade Iraq. His brother, he delivered by invading Iraq. Right, and Jeb Bush, uh, like you just pointed out with Project for a New American Century, all the way back in 1996, he was one of the founding members, along with Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld and Cheney, the same people that Bush surrounded himself with. Obviously, he couldn't surround himself uh, uh, by his brother. But as we've seen from the recent Jeb Bush email release from when he was governor of Florida, he was still consulting his brother as president on foreign policy matters, on what to do with the war. So that PNAC mentality, that war hawkishness in Jeb Bush was still calling the shots for George W. Bush. And that's exactly what we'd expect if, if, if Jeb were to get into office. This is a guy who wants to be president, says, yes, Iraq was a good call. I would do it again. Now, you put the little red button in that guy's hand. What do you think is going to happen? He, can't, he wouldn't stuff. be able to stop pushing it. <laughs> Obama. Okay. Obama, again, attacks Warren, says, oh, gee, she's just misled about TPP. Well, no, let me, you know, the truth is Warren and Sanders and Sherrod Brown and uh, White House, Sheldon Whitehouse, this handful of Democrats are the only, and Alan Grayson, the, this handful of Democrats, the only group that's willing to go forward and say, this is NAFTA disaster times 1,000. Now, Obama knows this. 
He's been told by some of the best economists in the world that this TPP is a disaster for this country. It's a disaster for manufacturing. It's a disaster for jobs. It's a disaster for regulations. It's a disaster for our own court system. Nevertheless, he got so damn much money from Wall Street that he's willing to put his entire legacy on the line because Wall Street wants this. They're demanding this. What's your quick take in about a minute and a half? He's selling out the American public. You know, we lost an estimated 1 million jobs just from NAFTA. Uh, numbers are still out on what CAFTA has done, and TPP would push that even further. And the fact that Obama can sit there and tell a, a, an interviewer that, oh, Elizabeth Warren, she's just a politician like everybody else, while he is sitting there hiding the real details of this TPP. That is inexcusable. And for those, you know, diehard Obama bots who want to, you know, uh, get online and say, you guys are being too hard on the president. No, absolutely not. He is out there essentially name calling and, and, and refuses to tell us what is in this deal that is going to absolutely decimate the United States economy. That is what is absolutely But nevertheless, the Wall Street, Wall Street Democrats jumped behind him. They agreed to a vote looked like they were going to actually show some backbone and some courage uh, going into this next election. They're going to kill themselves again by abandoning the very people who put them there. That's labor, that's progressives, that's environmentalists, the very people who care about the direction of this country in a positive kind of way. The Democrats, all they have on their mind is taking that money from Wall Street. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more news when we come back. And remember, you can always get the unfiltered news on ringoffireradio.com and on Ring of Fire on Free Speech TV every weeknight at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. I'm Mike Pavantonio. We'll be right back with more Ring of Fire. Welcome back to Ring of Fire. I'm Mike Papantonio here with Farron Cousins from the Trial Lawyer Magazine. Let's get back to our discussion on Ring of Fire News of the Week. Farron, people were just amazed that Marco Rubio, water boy, uh, made it through the senatorial race. They don't understand in Florida how he won. It was a year when you had the teabaggers full tilt. I mean, it was the year of the teabagger. And so he was swept in because of that year of the teabagger. And in getting swept in, what happened was Floridians in the teabagger mentality that put him in office, they didn't really care that he was being accused of stealing money from the GOP. It just didn't seem to be a real important issue. That he was actually stealing money for his personal use from the GOP. This story's coming out now, isn't it, Farron? It, it is. He was taking money from both the uh, Republican National Committee as well as taxpayers in the state of Florida. Back then, we find out he has all of these credit card charges for everything from liquor to stereo equipment for his car. But it wasn't that big of an issue to Florida voters, unfortunately, because that was at the same time when we had Rick Scott, the criminal governor, you know, who was running his campaign. So Marco Rubio's little credit card charges, a couple hundred thousand dollars, wasn't a huge issue to Florida voters. But now that Rubio's put himself out on the national stage, we have media outlets that are finally starting to pay attention to the fact that this guy ripped off both his own party 
and the taxpayers in the state of Florida when he was the, the Speaker of the House here for the state. I think it's kind of funny that his handlers are saying, oh, gee whiz, that deal about him stealing money from, you know, by way of credit card and buying $4,000 worth of carpeting for his house, buying stereo equipment, getting $200 haircuts. Uh, that, that didn't mean anything back then, and it doesn't mean anything now. The difference is the electorate across the nation is not quite as bonehead uh, uh, ignorant is that group of people that puts Rubio into office. That, that's what everybody's missing. Right. That's what his handlers are missing, is that you can't compare the American electorate with that one thing that happened in Florida where they, all that energy rose up around the teabaggers. I mean, it's just, it, the analysis right. is ridiculous. Right, and it's, it, it's not just that he took the money from the RNC. He did eventually pay most of it back, we're, we're told. Well, he was forced but, to. He was right. forced to because right. they, they, somebody said, you're stealing money from us. <laughs> and it, it, But, you know, it's the fact of what he spent the money on. That's what people should be a little bit more concerned about. I mean, this guy was acting like a drunken sailor on payday. He was out there. He wanted stereo equipment, uh, the, the liquor store, a haircut that cost more than $150. I mean, this is the guy who's branded himself as, oh, I'm, I'm a tea partier. I am a fiscal conservative. I don't waste money. Well, actually, Mr. Rubio, we can go through your record right here and see that you allegedly spent close to $800 on what you called computer repair. Turns out the place that fixed your computer sells music equipment. They don't even sell computers. Yeah, Carl so Hyacin, who's a wonderful columnist with Miami Herald, actually went to the store. They sell guitars. They sell karaoke machines. Uh, but there's nothing about, hey, we're here to fix computers. So I guess the important point is these politicians that win in their areas that have been gerrymandered to where they can't lose, they don't understand that that doesn't play out quite as well on a national stage. You know, they don't understand that, gee whiz, yeah, the teabaggers all ignored this because, you know, while they were thinking about me as a stealing money with a credit card, they were also having to consider that you had a governor, as you point out, Rick Scott, that stole one point, what is it, $1.2 billion from right. Medicaid, and he was still elected, pre- uh, elected governor of Florida. Where is this, where is Rubio's money coming from? Well, right now, you know, we, we have a, he's got a couple wealthy donors that he makes absolutely sure that he takes care of. And, and, and another interesting point in this Miami Herald story that you point out is the fact that, you know, he, he sold uh, his old home to the mother of a chiropractor who was lobbying to ease some of the restrictions and some of the rules uh, regarding insurance payments. Rubio was actually against it until this chiropractor's <laughs> mother came along, purchased his house, got him a $200,000 profit He is, of this it. guy is just such it, a lightweight. Yeah, and, and, and so gonna, then he changes his tune on the insurance yeah, issue. It, it's so that's sh- the kind of guy he is. Yeah, it's going to show up in the national election. Tell me about this Alex, this Alex Jones story that you've been covering. Uh, you know, we, we look at a guy like Alex Jones and we're not sure, what, we know that he lives in a cuckoo nest. But we're not sure how dangerous he is until you read something like the book called Eliminationist, where you understand his kind of crazy talk breeds other crazy action. What's your take on this Alex Jones and how and his movement towards kind of uh, it's, it's almost towards the level of insanity when you listen to him? It really is. You know, and Alex Jones, 
he says all these things that it's easy for a sane person to hear, laugh about it and think, oh, you know, this guy's just kind of nutty. He thinks, yeah, there's this race of reptilian humanoids that run the planet. Ha ha. But that is very dangerous. Alex Jones, unfortunately, has a very large audience, has a very big pull when it comes to persuading these people. And he has millions out there that actually buy into these crazy ideas that he has. He is the one who recently pushed the idea that all these military operations, you know, training operations taking place in Texas, he convinced people in the state of Texas that this was part of the U.S. government's military takeover of the state that they were sending in these troops. They were going to take it over. Texas wasn't going to be your Texas anymore. And Alex Jones is the guy who pushed this. Well, I do think think we should invade Texas and take their oil, but that's another story. So listen, uh, Farron, this is a guy that came up with the, the idea that Obama has weather weapons, that he has miniature helicopters, that he flies around at night to affect the weather. Uh, he's the guy that dresses up like, uh, he, he, I remember, dress, well, he talks about the Illuminati, uh, the Bilderberg group, everything that is uh, the demonic mustaches. Do you know that story? He, he, he says the FBI wears, wears demonic mustaches to, to conceal their true identities. But this is the kind of stuff people hear every day. He dresses up like Heath Ledger's Joker from The Dark Knight. And people watching that don't seem to understand the guy needs to be on Thorazine. It's not, this isn't funny anymore. This is a guy that has, he's got command of a radio mic. Right. And he was one of the main people out there pushing these, uh, the, the militia groups that showed up to defend Clive and Bundy pointing, you know, loaded AK 47s at federal agents. Alex Jones was out there pushing them on saying, all right, here's the time. This is when we take back our government, take back our country and it, very dangerous stuff. I mean, he, wanted people to go out there and, and, and point those guns at the federal agents. I don't know if he wanted them to pull the trigger or not. You know, he didn't specifically say that, but that is how dangerous he yeah, is. Well, he, he, is underst- he, underst- to he understands there that there are, there are people that are way short of a full deck listening <laughs> to him every day. And he plays that real quick. We got, a, we got about two minutes. Tell us about what the GOP is trying to do to uh, eliminate any issues about discussion about climate change. What's their latest thing? This is probably one of the most disgusting things they've done in regards to climate change. Uh, They've proposed this legislation that's going to cut $300 million from NASA's earth science budget, which is essentially only to shut down that agency's study of climate change. Now, people may think, oh, that's not a big deal. We have all these independent groups out there that study these things, but nobody does it as in-depth as NASA. And NASA's findings on climate change are used by the military to to plan for operations. They're used by insurance company to determine rates and what they're going to be able to cover when this happens. They help the U.S. plan for massive climate-related immigration into the country from other countries. This is a huge deal, and it's basically the Republicans saying, look, we're tired of denying the science, so we're just going to prevent there from being any science. I mean, this has taken it to a whole new level here. Right. While that's happening, you have private industry, you have insurance industry that already says there's parts of the world we refuse, absolutely will not insure because of climate change. Those same reports coming from the biggest insurance industry in the world, biggest companies in the world, are saying not only is it here, but it's man-made. Military, as you point out, Pentagon saying, absolutely, we're here with climate change. It's It's a security risk for all Americans. 
we have to do something about it, and we believe it's man-made, and you have the government trying to shut that down. At some point, when do we start showing pictures of these guys? Because they really are criminals. These are, these are criminals who don't really care whether your grandchildren or, or people watching this program, whether their children can live in a safe world because— of the of the disaster that's right there it's called climate change and they right st- they're they're absolutely willing to sell the entire you know united states down the river just to get a couple more million dollars from the oil industry or the coal industry you know another just really quick uh, a couple weeks ago they've uh, really started to attack these epa new uh, standards for coal-fired power plants to reduce their emissions that's it study comes out say that this will save thousands of jobs uh, thousands of lives excuse me if you do the math on the estimated number of lives that would be saved versus the money that uh, the coal industry has given to the Republicans who voted for this, they have put a value on the American life at under $3,800 per person. Well, and that's how Republicans see people. They are worth less than the contributions that they get from the energy industry. Yeah, it's called the, it's called the ghoul factor. It's the same thing they do in the coal mines when they send down people to work in the coal mines. They know that a human life is only going to be $7,000, so what the hell, roll with it. We'll pick up with more news in our next hour, and don't forget that you can always get the news that the corporate media refuses to cover on our website at ringoffireradio.com. After the break, Ring of Fire contributor Carrie Jardine will be here to tell us why the GOP is having a very hard time keeping their voter base alive. They really are dying as we speak. I'm Mike Papantonio. We'll be right back with more Ring of Fire. I'm Mike Papantonio, and you've been listening to a free sample of Ring of Fire Radio. If you'd like to listen to the full show, subscribe to our weekly podcast at our website at ringoffireradio.com. It's your support that helps keep us on the air.